All right? Here's what we're going to do this morning. Um, we, we're in, in the series, and we've been in it for a while, on servanthood, because servanthood is what's going to manifest the greatness of the kingdom. And we've been looking at, you know, the connection of our hearts. That's what this is all about. It's not about what we do. It's about what's on the inside, that heart connection, that then manifests an exterior reality. Um, but we're going to be looking this morning again into this whole heart connection with our financial resources and I'm going to be answering the question at some point in my sermon, who knows when, uh, is uh, tithing a part of the New Testament church? And you might be surprised by my answer, um, but in looking to move to answer this question, I'm going to be talking about this whole concept of redeeming unrighteous mammon. Unrighteous mammon, mammon, mammon meaning money. We're going to see a scripture that Jesus actually used that terminology. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you, there might not be a lot of note takers in the room, but I'm going to ask you to just to, just to engage with me, be thinkers, uh, go from this time and study the word yourself to see if what is being presented to you today is true. And because we're going to, we're going to build a lot of foundation to get to the truth that I'm after this morning. And, um, Redeeming unrighteous mammon. That's really an interesting concept because, you know, how many of you know money doesn't have a soul like we do, right? And God came to redeem us, redeem our souls, which means simply to buy back. Revelation 5, 9 says we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And this whole buy back concept of this redemption, uh, it, it literally means that our hearts have now been made Holy. Everybody say holy. Now that's a religious term, but that term literally means to be set apart. And when our hearts that have been redeemed and set apart now to the Lord by the work of the blood of the Lamb, and that heart connection now engages treasure, i.e., whoa, out of that that redemption, we now begin to give our time and our talents and our resources to the kingdom, redemption now begins to come to these other spaces. Does that make sense? So when, we, when we're redeemed, heart connection takes place, then redemption now begins to come to time. Remember Jesus said, what did he say? Redeem the, because the days are evil, right? So there's this, there's this fallen uh, dominion, this power that's, that's over treasure that we are called to redeem. And I want to submit this to you. I want to submit the reason I'm going to go for it this morning on this message is if we don't redeem treasure, i.e. time, talents, and resources, we will not be able to transform culture. We, we, we got to get out of the clouds here. Like, if we don't redeem out of our own redemption time that has been stolen, talents in people's lives that have been set at bay and hidden, resources that are in the hands of the wicked, we won't be able to redeem and transform culture like God has called us to transform. How many, who wants five bucks? Nanda, come here. Go get yourself a little something, something. Take that little seed and look with me, <laughs> Wendy. 
Cash poor. All right. Amen. All right. Let's look with me at Luke chapter uh, two, verses one through four. I want to show you something here. It's really interesting. Nothing in the word of God is by coincidence or by accident. And here in Luke chapter two, it's the birth of Jesus. Jesus is going to light of the world is going to come onto the to the scene. And the authority within him is going to now begin at his birth to bring redemption to the world, to buy it back, to restore it back to its original intention, starting with humanity. And when our hearts get transformed, we begin to redeem everything else out of that reality. But look what he says, the writer of, writer of Luke. Luke says, at the time, the Roman, Roman emperor, very important for us to take note of that, Augustus, decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quinus was the governor of Syria. And it says that all returned to their ancestral towns to register for that census. Now, interestingly enough, it says in verse 4 that Joseph, who was a descendant of King David, who built the tabernacle of David, true heartfelt worship, this man was a descendant of. In Acts, we see prophetic decree that the tabernacle that had fallen down is going to be restored through a grace reality beginning with Jesus. So it's interesting that he is a descendant of David. They're returning to the hometown of David, Bethlehem, David's ancient home. And he traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. Now, context here is really important in the word of God. All right. Augustus, who was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, and his census, or the Greek word there is apophagreo, meaning to enter a registry. Enter a registry. In other words, it was identification for the specific purpose of taxation on the people. So the reason he called this census is to get everybody, to control everybody, to their hometowns, identify who these people were so that they could be taxed for the sake of income coming into the Roman Empire. Now, I talked the other week and I talked about the adversary. We need to be able to recognize in the word of God imagery. And I believe we can see it here where where I mentioned last week that the enemy is unable to create. He's only able to copy God's creative purposes. All right. And what's interesting here is the word for census, census, apophagreo, is the same exact verb the writer of Hebrews uses in Hebrews 12.23 to speak of those whose names are registered in heaven. See the dichotomy here? Governmental registry, heavenly registry. I love Jason Upton. He says, governments know us by a number, but God knows us by our names. Totally different culture. And in Jesus' day, tax collectors, or publicans as they were called, were hated by the people for their collection of government taxes and the excess these publicans charged to skim off the top for their own wealth. 
And we know this from Luke chapter 19, verse 8, where Zacchaeus, do you remember the one who was in the tree, Zacchaeus, come down, come down, the little song that some of you may have sung in, 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 I don't know, nursery school? What was that? Sunday school. After his conversion, he promised to give back, actually, he promised to give half of all of his wealth to the poor and then pay everybody back four times the amount that he stole from them when he took their taxes. Redemption. It was all about the heart. And interestingly enough, Jesus befriended tax collectors like Zacchaeus and Matthew, who became one of the apostles of the Lamb. Because, you know, he said it's not the, the, the well that needed a doctor, it's the sick. Jesus had this redemption thing in his, in his heart from day one. And for this, the religious... Oh, God, guys, I want such a religious free zone in the harbor. It's like the longing of my heart. The religious hated him for hanging out with these kind of people. Look at this in Mark chapter 2, verse 16. I'm building a very intentional foundation here. It says, when the teachers of the religious law who were Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? Very interesting. This was super hypocritical of the Pharisees to look at the tax collectors in such light and disdain because they actually directly benefited from the taxes collected by Rome. Study it out. There was, there was many, many taxes, and there was one tax called specifically the temple tax. Now again, if you can see this imagery, again the adversary in his kingdom, copy but can't create. The amount decreed specifically for the temple tax that needed to be paid by each individual came from what was originally instituted to pay for each person's sins in Exodus 30, verse 15, which was a half a shekel of silver for the poor. For the poor, this was equivalent to two silver Roman denarii or two silver Greek drachmas, which was about two days' wages. Now, how many of you know that work really hard out there? What if you had to pay two days of your wages for your sins to be redeemed? I want you to see this grace imagery here. When Jesus, do you remember this, was approached about paying the temple tax or paying this Two days' wages for his sins and for Peter as they went to the temple. He told Peter to do what? Do you remember the story? To catch a fish on a line. Come on. Jesus is so... He, he will blow our minds to get our attention. You'll, tr- you'll try to be figuring out what the heck just happened, but he's wanting you to understand why he did what he did. So he throws out this line, and Peter catches this tilapia, or, no, for real, it's a tilapia. I studied this out. It It had literally a pouch underneath its mouth 
where little fish would, would hide inside of this pouch when other big fish were coming to try to eat them. And so when he catches this tilapia, or they call it St. Peter's fish, if you go on the, the Israel trip with Samuel, you get to eat one of these when you go to the Galilee. He catches the fish, and in the pouch is a stator, or four drachma coin, the equivalent of a silver shekel, which was exactly enough to pay the temple tax for them both. (laughs) You can't earn your redemption. You can't earn your love that God has for you. And nor can anybody impose upon you, or should they, fear and manipulation to get you to do something that at the end of the day you really don't want to do. Now, in the midst of this, with Jesus' light shining into the darkness, in the the height of this counterfeit kingdom system called the Empire of Rome, The Pharisees were plotting on how to trap Jesus into saying something so that he could be arrested. They wanted him taken out. Now, there was not a battle going on here of flesh and blood. It was a much higher battle of spiritual reality, but it was working through these religious people. And look at this with me in Matthew 22, verse 16. It says, They sent some of their disciples... Like kind produce like kind, unfortunately. That's why Jesus, when he rebuked the Pharisees, he said, you're making your followers twice the sons of hell that you are. You're going to get return on what seed you plant. Along with supporters of Herod, there was a reason for this. They're disciples and supporters of Herod. Now watch this. To meet with him. They said, teacher... We know how honest you are. You teach the way of God truthfully. You are impartial and you don't play any favorites. I love this quote by Adelaide Stevenson. And he says, flattery is all right as long as you don't inhale. Can I get an amen right there? And they say in verse 17, they, says, they say, tell us what you think about this. This was a very calculated question. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The taxes that they were referring to, again, context is everything, specifically referred to this census tax that Augustus ordered, which was specifically used to finance, listen to me, the occupying Roman army. And among the Jews, it was the most hated of all the Roman taxes. Can you imagine being oppressed and yet you're funding your own oppression? And as a head tax, I call it nickels and noses. Sound familiar? 
It implied that Rome not only owned the land, but they owned the people themselves. That's how they viewed it. The Jews viewed, on the other hand, both themselves and the land that they were in as possessions of God. So it's significant here that in their plotting, if Jesus answered no to their question, the Herodians, who came with the disciples of the Pharisees, would charge him with treason against Rome. But if he said, yes, we should, the Pharisees would accuse him of disloyalty to Israel and to God. It was a no-win situation. Sometimes I feel like the culture of our world right now, on many different levels, with issues that are very difficult to discuss, the main spirit is not to find out truth and have genuine, heartfelt conversation. It's, it's a no-win situation right now. And that's why we're going to talk even on the 22nd about a way forward as it relates to racial reconciliation and how to model the heart of God in the midst of this demonic swirl, I call it, that's over even the people in the church, unfortunately. But look, look what it says in Matthew 22, verse 18. Jesus knew their motives, and he said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to tra- trap me? Here, he says, show me the coin used for the tax. And when they handed him this Roman coin, this denarius, which, by the way, is significant because it equaled one day's wage for a Roman soldier who was, who was oppressing them. And the coins were minted only under the authority and authorization of Caesar. He says, whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Now look at this. The denarius bore an image of Caesar's face on one side, and on the other side was an image of Caesar sitting on his throne in robes of deity. And the Jews considered the coin itself an idolatrous image that was in the world. Different systems, different cultures, the culture of the kingdom and the culture of the kingdoms of this world. So the whole, listen to me, the whole economic system of the Roman Empire, which the Jews and their temple were under, unfortunately. This is where I wish it was separation of church and state. I get nervous when, when, when the church wants to intermingle with some other system that we have no business being under. Are you following me? We honor. We do things with integrity. But we're not under any other system. We're under a whole different kingdom. Are you following me? It was a copy. This whole thing was, was, that was a copy of how things, how the, the, the kingdom economics were meant to operate. So Jesus answers their question in the most profound way. And you got to catch this. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So he wasn't 
you know, propagating, you know, tax evasion. You know, we laugh, but there's a tension in that. What, what do you do when your money is funding abortion? Or corrupt politicians? Or unjust wars? That's where the, those monies go to. Some of them. There's other great things. But Jesus said, listen, the way this thing's working is give to him what is his. But he says, and hear me well, you've got to catch this. Because we're talking about the redemption of unrighteous mammon. He says, give to God what belongs to God. Now, this reply, it says in verse 22, amazed them and they went away. Oh, I feel something in my spirit where these oppressive realities from a realm of darkness are soon getting ready to just go and walk right on away. So, let's get this practically laid out for us. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. What is that? It's clear. It's taxes. But give to God what belongs to God. What's he talking about? Well, you see, if we're going to go back... Or go and take back what was always God's in the first place, the wealth of all of the world. I mean, when we read scriptures like, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, or whatever, verses about his, his ownership, the earth is the Lord's, and everything in the earth, and the fullness thereof, right? If we're gonna go back and redeem unrighteous mammon, We need to give to God what belongs to God. What is that? It's the first fruits, which I'm going to, as we close, spend time explaining. So here's the answer to the question. Is 10% tithing a part of the New Testament church? No. Uh Uh-oh. Darren, you had me so close to guilted in and coming up and laying an offering at this altar. Let's look at this. Just hold on. Look, let's look at this for just a minute. In Luke chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus is teaching on money, which, by the way, he taught on more than any other subject. Any other subject. Is money important in the kingdom of God? If, if not, why would he have taught on them more than anything else? And we don't want to hear those messages. Why? And, and for good reason. We've been browbeaten. We've been, we've been betrayed. There's been wrong motives between, behind people standing in, this, in pulpits like this. People have been burned. They're over it. Little castles within the kingdom have been built on the backs of lots of money given by well-intending believers in the church. I have the fear of the Lord on me as it relates to these kind of things. It's one of the reasons we made certain decisions and done things the way that we have. It's the reason we met in homes and didn't even have a building for ten years. Because we wanted to show the Lord. We wanted to show the forces that be that we're, we're not about like manipulating to build something that we look at and go, Wow, look at how amazing we are. We want to see people changed. 
God will give us tools. He'll give us places like this. He'll give us other things to make that reality happen, which, by the way, is going to be changing in the days to come. Things aren't going to look like they look right now. We need to be on the edge with God there. Monies need to be redirected where they've been being spent. They don't need to be spent there anymore. They need to be re-stewarded over here. But anyhow, that's another message for another time. But look what he says in this verse. He says, no one can serve. And the word there is bond servant or be a voluntary slave. He's not talking about you coming under something you don't want to do. He's talking actually you're going to come under it because you want to do this because something has happened in your heart. If, listen, grace is unmerited favor that comes. We weren't looking for it. We didn't even deserve it. But when it really touches us, we bond servant or we voluntarily want to begin to do things. It's different. Religion is do things hoping that you're going to get your heart changed. Totally different mindset. Looks like a minor shift, but it's a major, major difference. No one can be a voluntary slave to two masters. You will hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot be a voluntary slave to both God and money. So the choice is, which one are you going to be a slave to? You see, we either serve money or money serves us. So here's the principle I want you to take away. When we are bond servants to God, money serves us, and that makes us trustworthy. You've got to catch this. Or able to be entrusted with things from heaven. You see, trustworthiness is an ability by the grace of God to be entrusted something. A spiritual truth, I've spoken this before, always has a practical cross-check. We're talking about, oh, wow, I've been entrusted with the kingdom, the kingdom of, of heaven. Spiritual cross-check. Here's the deal. Because the eternal seed that is in us, we are actually all destined to be trustworthy. Both with worldly wealth, as much as God would choose to give us, and, as, and we have capacity to steward, and with the kingdom of heaven. See, the enemy, he wants to tell you lies, like you're never going to succeed, you're not, never going to have, or he's going to try to twist you to get over here to sell yourself out to money. Or he's going to try to condemn you because you don't think you're doing enough or giving enough to God, which is going to be, you know, keep you out of church, keep you out of any place. Oh, I don't want to hear. I don't want, you know, like all that kind of stuff is going to be is, is swirling. So that's why I believe we're not a part of a Roman system with a temple tax that you're obligated to give, that we're going to hunt you down. We're going to identify you. We're going to look over our list. And we're going to start going out and going after your obligation to sow something into this church. In the, remember Jesus, you've heard it said, but I tell you, era. In grace versus an opposed 10% tithe, we're actually called to give everything. We are so living in the, you've heard it said, 
not the I tell you. Because the I tell you world is impossible. You've heard it said, don't look at a woman with lust or, or don't commit adultery. I tell you now, if you even look at her with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. What? That's impossible. Of course it is. The grace of God, because of divine enabling power working through us, has to be something impossible that we couldn't do on our own. To give everything, we are unable to do that. Let's be honest. It sounds super spiritual, and I've known people that have done it. Like, cast in everything, giving it all to God. Churches, pastors, people, leaders, they they sold their home, gave everything to the Lord. Jesus sees an example of this, actually, in Mark chapter 12. We're almost done. Verses 43 to 44, and he says, So he called his disciples and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that this poor widow has put more in than all those that have given into the treasury, for they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty. Look what he says here. Put in all that she had, her whole entire livelihood. So he sees now the atmosphere of the light in the midst of the darkness is beginning to pop. And this woman, who would be the last candidate to give because she doesn't really have anything, gives everything, puts all of her chips in on the table. Now, let's get practical again here. If we're called to give everything, how are we supposed to do that? You know, we all have bills. Anybody else have bills besides me? And and there's legit bills. There's housing, food, clothes transportation, recreation, or recreation that we all need to have money to go do. Well, I want to give everything. Well, listen, you may have a season where you give everything, but the rest of the time, especially when you have wifey at home, can I get an amen, guys? Oh, I want to give everything to Jesus. Don't get married. Amen. Here we go. Girls with swords. Coming after you for your cash. I'm kidding. I'm joking. Whoa. I'm totally kidding. Wendy is the last person to do that. Right, baby? So here, here's, here's, let's make this super practical. What we need to do is have good stewardship with the money that we've been given as it relates to these expenses. Come on, let's be honest. In the culture of the world that we live in to America, and especially South Florida, most people are way over leveraged. And we want to make things super spiritual. Listen, if you can't pay your bills every month, how are you going to ever have faith to give first fruits off the top? So maybe besides any of all that other stuff, because you've just been given an obligation anyhow, go sit in a class where you learn how to manage your money or go get with a mentor. This is really important. And I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit, we don't, we, we wonder, man, what's going on? This must be the devil. He's, I'm being held accountable for my finances. No, it's not the devil. It's God. He's doing it to Wendy and I. He's refining us. He's making us good stewards. Because when you're entrusted with the little, he'll be able to pour more into you. And there's costs that we all have to count here. I remember when Wendy and I walked out of the corporate world, which, just to be honest, we could have been millionaire, multi-gazillionaires by now. And God asked me the question. He said, will you be willing? 
to not make millions, but steward and funnel them through the kingdom, through your very life that I've been equipping you for this whole entire time. So, here's what happens when we give of the first fruits. It begins to redeem unrighteous mammon, which is God's at the end of the day. So, first fruits, what is that? Darren, what are you talking about? First fruits is a gift to God off of the top. So, I give, I give Nida five bucks. That was like a gift that came to her supernaturally. Can I get an amen right there, Nida? Thank you so much. It was a supernatural exercise. First fruits for her would be, hey, out of that $5, I'm going to now sow money from that right off the top to somebody or something else. Wendy and I do this all the time. If we get taken out of dinner, we're mindful like, hey, man, we got something sown into our lives. We're going to first fruit this out to someone else. Money that we earn, which we're going to see in a minute, is, by the way, like like the, the, the labors of war... Because how many of you know we're at war with the system of the world? And there's oppressive forces vying against our ability to earn income. So whatever we earn, we first fruit off of the top of that. Now, here's the deal. First fruits, depending on your stewardship. you got to hear this. Please focus in. Depending on your stewardship posture and your faith, it's both. Could be 1%. Or it could be 99%. Or at times it could be 100%. Can you see that? So it's off the top. It's like I'm giving to God first. Back it up with Scripture. All right, let's do that. Romans 11:16. Paul. He says, New King James Version here. If the first fruit is holy... Holy, what's that? I already told you. Set apart. Then what does he say? Then the lump is holy and the root is holy and so are the branches. In other words, when you give that gift off the top, it sanctifies or redeems all of the rest. Religious preachers will tell you, if God ain't going to get your tithe out of you, he'll get it out of you some other way. He'll break down your refrigerator. He'll give you a flat tire, you know. Dude. But I do believe that, I do believe that as we sow first fruits, it sanctifies all the rest of our money. And there's a sovereign covering and protection over that. From the devil, not from God. Romans 11:16, New Living. I'm, I'm almost done here. I, I want to show you this in, the, in a different translation. And it says, "And since Abraham, check this out. I love this. Abraham, pre-Moses, pre-law, he he gave this portion of a batch of the dough, and then the rest became holy." Paul says. So there's this eternal covenant that's instituted with Abraham where he comes and his heart is captured. And because of that, he responds. The writer of Hebrews, he speaks about this in chapter 7. 
from Melchizedek, talking about the pre-incarnate Christ, the king of Salem, the priest of the Most High, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, blessed him, and Abraham gave a portion, which don't confuse us with the tithe. He, he, he chose to give 5% off the top, all right? I think that's a good practical place to start. But check this out. What did he give him? you got to understand what he gave him. When he conquered kings, what he received was pagan riches from their temples. It came into Abraham's possession. He gave first fruits to the Lord. It sanctified or set apart the rest. And he was a very prosperous patriarch in his day. Do you see this? Listen. We're children of Abraham. Nothing has changed. We're out there and we're getting spoils of war from corrupt kings. And we're bringing them into the treasury of the Lord, our own hearts, our own homes. And he says in verse 4 of Hebrews 7, we're going to sing a song together. It says, now consider how great this man was. Now here's, here's the main point here. How great is Jesus and His redeeming blood that has touched our hearts that would by His enablement give us stewardship ability and faith to give first fruits right off the top. Look at what, what's happening in Revelation chapter 4. Last scripture, verse 8. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around within and they do not rest night and day, saying, Holy, holy, holy. The set-apart one. Lord God Almighty, who was. Abraham, who is. Jesus' time. And who is to come right now with us. To us. And then everything. Broken by the fall. Redemption is destined. And it says, whenever the four living creatures gave honor and glory to God and thanked Him for sitting on the throne and lived forever and ever, the 24 elders fell down before Him and cast their crowns before Him, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor for You, what? Created everything. Even their first fruit rewards in another realm they cast. Whoa. Could you stand with me? As we lift up this song, I'm believing, God, that every partner in our church would have encountered the redeeming power of the blood in such a way that in their hearts... They would be so inspired by how great this man was that with every spoil of war, with every gift, with everything that comes into our lives, that we would offer a portion back right off the top to the Lord based on our capacity, practically, and our faith. You know what I want to do as we close? Like, if you've got, like, made your debt, you're leveraged, you're stretched, you have a job that's just not paying the bills, 
Could we believe God like to shift something in those realms even today? And then let's say we're doing awesome, but we're kind of living for ourselves. We forgot like, you know, what this whole thing is about. And, you know, again, like I, I was inspired by Mark Zuckerberg. He's not even a believer as far as we know. And he's living off 1%. The Lord spoke to me and said, that's where the church is going eventually going to lift this up and you're dismissed if you have children you can go pick them up and in the in the kids and then come back and you're free to go quietly as i close here but we're going to lift up this song we're going to have some of our, our prayer team here if you don't know the lord we want to introduce you to him if something about this message touched your heart come down seek jesus at the altar if you've got sickness in your body let us pray for you today but we're going to lift this up and just give glory to the lord who is redeeming even unrighteous mammon in his name. God bless you guys.